Take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Hebrews 10. We were topical this morning and didn't really park in a passage as we were going back and forth between Matthew and Luke trying to piece together the Christmas story from those two Gospels. And as we piece together the Christmas story, um, recognizing um, the, the proper chronology and then understanding some of those important um, sayings about Christ, important declarations concerning Christ, that Jesus Christ is indeed God in flesh, the Savior of the world, our Comforter, and our Light. But there is much that had not yet happened when Jesus Christ was born, much that those who rejoice over His birth would not yet know about. There was much that the Old Testament prophets had promised about this Messiah. There is much that was known about this Messiah, but there was much yet and still that remained a mystery. Much that would not have been anticipated. And we see all throughout the Gospels as Jesus is, is living and, and uh, proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom and and His earthly ministry, as we see these things, what we understand is that really, even the devout, even those that were eagerly anticipating and looking for Messiah's coming, even those who accepted the reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, they still would look at some of the things Jesus did and some of the things He said and, and say, Jesus, where are you coming from on that? We, we, don't, we don't get you. We don't understand. Even up till after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, the disciples were saying, Lord, is now the time that You'll restore Your kingdom? Is now the time that the physical kingdom will finally come to this earth? And so there is much that was unknown. Much that now, through the Scriptures, we do know. After Jesus' birth, this child would grow. Luke 2.52 tells us that he grew in favor both with God and man. Around the age of 30, Jesus began his earthly ministry declaring repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It would be some three years later that Jesus would experience the final rejection of the nation of Israel, be tortured and put on a cross, Three days later, rising again, as he bore the punishment of our sin, the Bible tells us that it was the wrath of God that was poured out upon him. And so Romans 4 verse 25 tells us that Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Jesus didn't just die. He rose again. He lives today in heaven at the right hand of God as a living Savior, ever living to intercede on our behalf before God. Our righteousness, our hope of all that is to come. And this morning we spoke generally about all that would be one in Christ, generally about the ministry that He has while focusing mainly on His appearing, on His incarnation, on Him becoming flesh. This evening, the title of the message being The God of Christmas Present, I'd like us to consider what has now been won in Christ with a focus upon His current ministry in our lives and our responsibility 
in this life because of the ministry that Jesus Christ now has. And so you are there in in Hebrews chapter 10. If you take a look with me at verse 18. Now where remission of these, that would be sins, is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The overriding theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ and His ministry to all things, whether visible or invisible, whether living or dead, tangible or intangible, every philosophy, every religion, Everything in this earth and the next is submitted to the ministry of Jesus Christ. In typical fashion to a Pauline epistle, the writer then leaves doctrine to focus on practice. He begins the book by giving the doctrinal implications of Jesus Christ being the great high priest, being greater than the Aaronic priesthood, uh, his covenant being greater than the Mosaic covenant. He speaks on all of these very doctrinal levels. Someday we'll, we'll preach on that. Um, I'm excited to one day preach the book of Hebrews. I'm intimidated to one day preach the book of Hebrews. Um, of any book in the Bible that I... Um, am intimidated when I think about preaching it. Hebrews is at the top of my list. It's quite a book. There's a lot in that book. And it is here in Hebrews 10 where we see the transition that the writer makes between doctrine and practice. And it is, in fact, in verse 19, which we read, where this transition takes place. However, we, as uh, we read this evening, are going to begin in verse 18. Hebrews 10.18 says, Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. I'm sorry we're jumping right into the middle of a context here. Um, I, I'm not, I don't typically enjoy jumping into the middle of, a, of the context of anything. I like to start at the beginning, but, but let's just talk about the context a little bit and try to catch ourselves up to speed. Paul finishes his argument about the superiority of Jesus Christ's covenant of grace to that of the law with this definitive statement in verse 18 that where the remission of sin is, there is no more offering for sin. Jesus Christ is the once for all complete offering for sin, one that paid for the sins of every man and fully, perpetually, and eternally satisfied the wrath of God against mankind for his rebellion and his sin. This is the baseline for our study this evening, that Jesus Christ died for our offenses, that he rose again for our justification, and that we have received this gift of salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, so that the wrath of God is no longer upon us, but was poured out on his Son. 
You say, well, pastor, if the wrath of God on all sin was poured out on His Son, then why will anyone ever burn in hell? It's a good question. And we've mentioned many times from behind this pulpit that there will be no one in hell one day burning for their own sin, for their sin was paid for in Christ. The condition upon which a person goes to hell as opposed to going to heaven is not the sins they commit, it is their belief or unbelief on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. Jesus clearly taught this in John three sixteen through 19 that whosoever believeth is not condemned, but whosoever believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. So if we can put it this way, the only sin for which anyone will ever be burning in hell for is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ, rejecting the revealed Word of God. Because Jesus Christ paid for all of our sins. Now let's consider what this gift means for us today and every hour of our Christian lives. Let's consider the ministry that Jesus Christ has for us as we will see in the text a great high priest. In Hebrews 10.19, the Bible says, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ." The first perpetual result of Jesus Christ's sacrifice that we ought to be living on a daily basis is boldness to come into Christ's, to God's presence through Christ. Paul seeks to help us understand this idea. He was writing to a Hebrew audience, obviously, and so they would have been very familiar with the sacrificial system. We perhaps are not as familiar with the sacrificial system, but we have an entire Old Testament to teach us about it. We have an entire Old Testament to make us familiar with the expectations of God under the law as pertaining to the sacrificial system. And Paul contrasts here the privilege that we have under this new covenant of grace with the provision made in the Mosaic law for the high priest to enter in once a year into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, which was in the temple typically called in the Old Testament the most holy place, it was the very innermost sanctuary of the Hebrew temple and the Hebrew tabernacle. The room that we would call the Holy of Holies inside the Hebrew temple was 10 square cubits. And it was separated from the other part of the tabernacle by a massive curtain hung off of four gold pillars. On the screen behind me, you see an exploded view of the temple. That would be a top view on the left there, um, exploded. So you've got the curtains on the side, you've got the pillars. And that red area being the portion of the temple that would be the Holy of Holies. On the right, you would see the external view of the temple uh, or the tabernacle. It was indeed quite square. It was a square tent. It was a square temple and the whole thing being 30 cubits long and 10 cubits high, the Holy of Holies would have been at the very back end of the tabernacle and the back end of the temple as 10 of those 30 cubits long and the full 10 cubits high, 10 cubits wide. So a 10 square cubit space. Now Leviticus 16 teaches us that once every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into that holy place and would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat as a part of the atonement ritual for the sins of the people. 
This would be the one-year national atonement for God's people, the, the time where um, Israel would um, place upon a scapegoat all of their sins and it would, be, it would wander away into the wilderness. They would sacrifice an animal. They would sprinkle His blood on the mercy seat. And all of these rituals were intended to signify that God was going to remit the sins of the people. And then it would start all over again. No man but the high priest ever entered into the presence of God. And if he did it unworthily, if he entered into the presence of God not having performed every ritualistic cleansing, well, in fact, they had bells sewn to the hems of his garments so that if he stopped moving for a long enough time and a rope on his ankle, they could pull him out of the Holy of Holies anticipating that God had struck him dead for going into the presence of the Lord without being properly cleansed. And so there were bells on his garments. There was a rope around his ankle so that they could get him out of the Holy of Holies if God so chose to strike him dead. Once a year, this high priest would go in, not with terror, but certainly with trembling and fear, knowing that God is certainly capable of such. The direct presence of God was said to be in that Holy of Holies, residing above the mercy seat, at least until the days of Ezekiel, right? When Ezekiel saw the vision of the glory of God departing from the temple. A vision which the, the glory of God, he saw the glory of God return to the temple, but not until the millennial kingdom. And so, we, we recognize that certainly that glory of God has departed from the temple, but it did dwell above the mercy seat and above the Ark of the Covenant for some time in Israel's history. It's called the Shekinah glory in the Hebrew. And as we mentioned, the direct presence of God was therefore absolutely inaccessible to God's people. They could never enter into the holy place except for one man, the high priest. They could only ever get into the presence of God by proxy of this high priest. They always had to go through some other man to get to God. The overriding theme of interaction with the thrice holy God was certainly one of fear. Reverence, yes, but a recognition that no one but those who have been allowed and commanded, this one man, this one time per year, can enter into God's presence. That is the context that the writer is speaking of here as he seeks to paint a picture of this concept that we now have something very different. We come back to Hebrews 10.19 and we find that now we are said to be able to have boldness to enter into that holy place. The concept of the holiest of holies was to go directly into the presence of God and that is what Paul is saying here. That we can have boldness confidence, assurity to step directly into God's presence. And where does this confidence come from? As we live on a daily basis, going, waking up, going from point A to point B to point C, going to bed, and we have the boldness to come before our God, where does that boldness come from? And the Scriptures tell us it is the blood of Jesus Christ. Just as the high priest 
made a blood sacrifice and then entered into the holiest on the merits of the atonement and sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat, so too you and I enter into the presence of God on the merits of a blood sacrifice. The sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God who is Jesus Christ. And so we understand that the temple and tabernacle, the mosaic sacrificial system, is meant to be an illustration. An illustration in a physical sense, of something that would happen later, something that would be completed in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It goes on in verses 20 and 21 to say this. Start back in verse 19 for context. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God. And we'll pick up there in a moment. Paul calls this entrance, this boldness to enter before the presence of our God, a new and a living way, one never before known to man. Since the days of Cain and Abel, men have been seeking fellowship with God by means of sacrifice. You remember the story of Cain and Abel. They both gave a sacrifice unto the Lord, Abel's sacrifice was accepted before God. Cain's sacrifice was not accepted before God. It's not because God didn't like Cain. In fact, God says, why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But see, the problem is, Cain thought he could get to God with the best that he had to offer. He was a farmer. So he took the very best of his crops. He took the very best of his vegetables and whatever else he may have been farming. And he laid it on an altar and he sacrificed it to the Lord. And Abel was a shepherd. He took one of his sheep. He sacrificed it to the Lord. See, the problem was not that each one brought their best. The problem was Cain didn't bring what God requested, which was a blood sacrifice. Cain came to God with... We would say he came to God with the, the right heart, but the wrong sacrifice. See, God is not a God that will simply accept anything. We, we worship the Lord not just in spirit with a right heart, but in truth, the way He asks us to. All the way back to Cain and Abel, men have been making sacrifices, blood sacrifices, to be in fellowship with the Lord. But all of that changed when Jesus, upon the cross of Calvary, cried out, It is Finished. On that day, the Scriptures say something happened in the temple. Do you remember what it was? When Jesus Christ gave up His Spirit and He died, the Scriptures tell us that in that tabernacle, as we were looking at that exploded view, that the veil that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple split in two. Signifying exactly what we're learning about this evening, that now mankind, through the blood of Jesus Christ, can have boldness to enter directly into the presence of God. We don't need a human high priest, a pope, a bishop, a, a mediator in this material life. We have a high priest, a great high priest, Jesus Christ, our mediator. The day in the, that the temple, the veil of the temple was torn in two, a new veil was erected. 
to form a barrier between God and man. And this verse tells us that the veil that, bar- that is the barrier between God and man is indeed the body of Jesus Christ which was slain for us. Thus, to get into the presence of God, we must go through the veil. That is to say, we must go through our Savior, Jesus Christ, through His atoning death. No man cometh unto the Father, Jesus said in John 14, 6, but by me. You want to get to the Father, there's still a veil. And Jesus Christ is the veil. You go through Him. But once we have, once we have accepted Christ as our Savior, once we have passed through the veil, we might say, the way is consecrated. The way is made clear. The new and living way has been consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. The high priest, once the only man with the authority to stand in the presence of God, is now Christ Himself who gives us the authority to enter in through this new and living way by proxy of His sacrifice and our acceptance of it. This truth serves as the very foundation for the joy and the peace that we rest in as believers. We saw this morning in John 16.33, Jesus Christ said, in this world we have tribulation, be not afraid, I have overcome the world. He said we can have peace in Him. As a pastor, one of the best ways that I know how to uh, tell the people of the church that I desire to help them at any time and in any way I possibly can is to tell them my door is always open. The idea of that phrase, if I were to say, hey Caleb, just want to let you know my door is always open. The idea is that I am willing at any time to help him, to accept him. That he can come to me at any time with a problem, with a need, with a concern, with a question, and I will do my very best to help him with that concern, with that question. You can come knocking on my door, you can call me on the phone, you can text me, whatever it was, and I will do my best to respond as quickly as possible. In fact, I tell many of the folks at church this, I keep my cell phone next to my bed all night, every night, the ringer's on, If anyone ever needs to call, I'm ready. I I never take, unless I'm preaching or something, I don't have my phone. My phone is on silent right now, but I'm accessible to my people. And the way I, I would describe that is my door is always open. And while the people of the church may not need my services as such, when you do, it's a wonderful thing to know that someone is available, that I'm here, that I'm willing, that I'm ready. In the United States, we have an emergency call system, right? You dial 911 and you will be patched into a police department. It's now pretty standard across the entire country, not just on landlines, but on cell phones. You dial 911 and you are confident that if you've got cell service, you're going to be patched through to emergency services. Their line is always open. Someone is always ready to respond. There's a comfort in knowing that that's there, is there not? There's a comfort in knowing that if I need help, I can get a hold of someone. Well, what this passage is teaching, if I may boil it down, is that in our Christian lives, you have a God whose door is always open. You don't need to make an appointment to speak with God. You don't need to wait until you have time to go to church to speak with God. 
You don't need to go through a priest. If a priest is busy, sorry, you're out of luck. You don't need to wait in line with others waiting to speak with the God of the universe. Imagine how long that line would be. The door is always open. The way has already been made clear. It's been consecrated for us. You have permanent, perpetual access to the throne of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, there are things that can hinder that access. You know that, right? The unbeliever lacks this access because he's not gone through the veil. He's not gone through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the unbeliever does not have access to the throne of grace. There is um, the, the common grace, uh, oftentimes called in theological circles, provenient grace that is over all men. And we recognize that. And, and God is, it doesn't just stick His hand out against all unbelievers and say, no, I want, I want nothing to do with you. But unbelievers do not have access to the throne like you do. The believer who is walking out of fellowship with the Lord has hindered his access to God as well. First John teaches this quite clearly, that if we are out of fellowship with the Lord, that the Lord will not hear us. Our pride can hinder our access as we might convince ourselves we don't need God's help. We don't want God's help. We can handle things on our own. But that doesn't change the fact that these are our problems. God has left the door open if only we are willing to enter into His presence. How often we fail to use this privilege that has been purchased for us. How often we come to a crossroads to a decision and we'll worry and we'll wonder and we'll think and we'll assess. We'll get ulcers. We'll get anxiety attacks. All of these things will happen until we finally realize that we need to go before the throne of God. How often we'll wish for things that could be, but ignore the one who can bring them to pass. How often we content ourselves to be confused instead of going to the one who knows all things. Our friends and family have needs, but will we take them to the throne of God? We have concerns, but will we lay them before God's feet? We have needs, but will we ask God to meet those needs? See, Jesus Christ purchased for us in His body a bold, uninhibited access to the throne of God. The question is, are we using it? So then, seeing we have this way purchased for us, what should we do about it? Well, we've already talked about it a little bit. The writer gives us four things, four elements, four actions, four things we should do seeing that we have unimpeded access to the throne of God. And these are in verses 22 through 25. First one, Hebrews 10.22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. First, Paul says, if the door has been left open to the throne room of God, well then, believer, draw near. Approach. Open the door. Go in. Talk to your Father. That being said, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that God doesn't care how we come to Him. We talked about it just briefly with Cain and Abel. Even the most gracious of kings has expectations as to how one should approach his courts, does he not? Even the most understanding of fathers may be put off by a child who approaches him with disrespect and dishonor. Right? Maybe the father would be glad to have granted the request of his child, but that child comes to him and dishonors him and disrespects him 
And it's the manner which the child came, not the fact that the child's coming, that has put the father off. So as we endeavor to live this life with the ear of our Father and King, as we endeavor to draw near unto God as we've been commanded to do, and, w- and the way has been made clear by Jesus Christ, we would do well to know how to approach Him properly. And that's what this verse teaches. Paul gives two elements that should characterize our approach to God. And the first of these elements is that we should have a true heart. Now, the importance of this theme The idea of a true heart, that being a heart that is not one of hypocrisy, is not one of ulterior motive, but is one of honesty and truth, is littered throughout the Bible. I may preach a message sometime tracing this theme. I just absolutely love this theme. God said to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 1, 11-13, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? saith the Lord. I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or of goats. Skipping to verse 13. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. God told them that all of these things that He had commanded them to do in the Mosaic Law were sickening to Him because as they came to Him, they came with the right actions but a false heart see we come and we sit and we sing and we pray and we listen but if we came with a false heart unwilling to do what God has asked us to do and we leave this place and we go and we keep sinning the way God has clearly commanded us not to then everything we did here is of no effect before God Coming to God with a false heart but with the right things has never been enough for God. We worship God not just in spirit but in truth. God would say it another way in Isaiah 29.13. Wherefore the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precepts of men. Jesus actually quoted this verse in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, as he condemned the Pharisees for their double standard. Perhaps you remember the passage. In the previous verses in Matthew 15, Jesus points out that they have invalidated the law through their traditions. They read the law that said, Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. And then the Pharisees said, However, If I go to my father and my mother and I say something dishonoring to them, but I tell them it's a gift, Corban, it's a gift by which you can be profited of me, well, then it's okay. So I can go up to my parents and say, hey, look, you need to back off of me a little bit. You are being way too heavy-handed. And they'd say, well, you're being disrespectful. No, 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 I'm not being disrespectful. I'm just trying to help you be a better parent. So back off. That was allowed under the law. They had taken the law and they had twisted it to allow themselves to dishonor their parents without thinking that they defended the law. Jesus Christ says, when you can do this, it's hypocrisy. He said that their tradition made the law of God of none effect. And then this is what he said in Matthew 15, verses 7 and 8. Ye hypocrites, well did Esaias, that would be Isaiah, prophesy of you saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is a very apt description 
of drawing near to God with a false heart. Attempting to come to God on our terms, not His terms, thinking that by coming at all, we have somehow obligated God into doing things for us. Folks, it doesn't work that way. We are to draw near to God, but as we do so, it's got to be with a true heart. It can't just be the right things. It has to be the right heart behind the things. It can't just be that we come to God and and we see Him as our little lucky rabbit's foot, right? That if we rub just the right way that God is obligated to, to do what we want Him to do. God, I've read my Bible today. That means that You have to bless me. No. We come to God with a true heart. We come to God not twisting, misinterpreting, or construing His Word for our favor, but in humility. True heart. Genuine desire to come to God His way because that's the only way He will ever accept. The second way in which we come to God, not just with a true heart, but this verse says, in full assurance of faith. The idea here is that we come to God with a genuine heart, but also with complete confidence in Him. You know, God has always responded to those who come to Him with true and complete faith. The Gospels call it childlike faith. In Matthew 18, verses 2 and 3, Jesus said this, He called the children unto Him, and He set them in the midst, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The faith and innocence of a child is magnificent, is it not? They haven't been spoiled by the world around them. They haven't been soured by circumstances. They haven't been taken advantage of, and so they are able to trust. They haven't been hardened by the reality of wickedness, the memories of people who have hurt them, the harshness of personal regret. So they'll trust. Children can sleep peaceably at night. Children can wake up in the morning with few cares. My little children don't lie awake at night wondering if there will be food on the table tomorrow. They may lie awake at night screaming and jumping on the bed, but it's not because they're wondering if there's going to be food on the table tomorrow. My girls don't spend their time fretting over finances. They don't assess the character of people before they go up and shake their hand on a Sunday morning. They don't wonder if it's advisable or not to talk to strangers. They have no concept of the evil that is in this world. My children will take mom and dad at our word. If we tell them something, they'll believe it. They aren't critical thinkers. They don't assess our every word. They don't have the capacity yet for true skepticism. And while these are important traits as we get older because of the evil of this world, they can also be extremely detrimental in our ability to serve and to approach God properly. If I were to pick up one of my daughters after the service and hold her in my hands and toss her in the air, you would not see a look of fear on her face. You'd see a smile because she has full faith that daddy's going to catch her. Child-like faith. But we lose that, don't we? It goes away over time. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. 
You know, God is not a fool. And the things of God are not foolishness. But to the mind of the intellectual, to the mind of the skeptical, to the man of high esteem, the method of coming to God is indeed foolishness, isn't it? I don't have to stand on my own abilities or intellect. The least can come as well as the greatest. What kind of a system is this? I'm a, I'm a smart man. I ought to have a, a leg up on all of these little peons over here. What do you mean they can come to the Father just like I can come to the Father? It can be a great hindrance to us. The wise man has spent his life relying upon his intellect to see him through and God asks him to humble himself and accept the simplicity of the Gospel. The strong man has spent his life trusting in his strength to lift him up in time of need and God asks him to humble himself and be weak to demonstrate his weakness through humility so that God can be strong through him. The honorable man has spent his life standing upon his influence and his fame and God asks him to humble himself and to see himself as a nobody in the face of a God who is everything. God asks us to put out our arms and to tip back and to wait for God to catch us, knowing that God will in faith. Child-like faith. But if we will come to God as that little child, in full assurance of faith, not dragging along a bag of skepticism, self-exaltation, personal entitlement, but rather genuine love and faith, casting our cares upon Him for He careth for us, then we will please Him and we will have His ear and we will have what we ask of Him. So we draw near. A true heart with true faith the only barriers between you and God are the barriers that you have erected yourself. And as we come with a true heart and full assurance of faith, Paul tells us that we will invariably come to Him both in purity of heart and body. And Paul brings us back to an illustration of the Jewish sacrificial system to describe the purity of heart and body. That just as the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat was a symbol of the people's atonement and cleansing of sin by the blood of the Lamb, so too our hearts must first be cleansed from our sin before we are able to enter into the presence of our God. Proverbially, metaphorically, uh, symbolically, our heart must be sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, that who is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. To the Christian, this idea of cleansing takes two very distinct forms. And it's the first and most prevalent form that we think of in this idea of having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. The moment of salvation, the moment we accept Christ as our Savior, we are cleansed from our sin in that we have received by faith the finished work of Jesus Christ and so we are made a new creature in Christ, free from the power of our sin nature and now finally able to please God as we walk with the Spirit of God in fellowship. That's the picture of our hearts being cleansed from an evil conscience. The second idea that we often think of when we think of cleansing is the confession of our sin. So when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, 
We have accepted the gift of salvation on our behalf, and now as a believer, we can be walking either in fellowship with God as we walk with the Spirit, or we can walk out of fellowship with God as we have sin in our lives. And then we'll manifest the works of the flesh. And the Scriptures tell us that when we're out of fellowship with God, 1 John 1, 9, if we will confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This cleansing, the 1 John 1, 9 cleansing that comes through confessing our sins unto God is the picture of our bodies being washed with pure water. Jesus Christ gave another picture of this when He was on the earth. Jesus was washing His disciples' feet. Do you remember? And as he was washing his disciples' feet, he came to Peter and Peter said, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if you won't let me wash your feet, then you have none of me. And Peter said, well, then don't just stop at my feet. Wash all of me. And Jesus said, no. No, you are already clean. You don't need to be washed entirely. I just need to get the dust off your feet. The picture there is of the sin of this life. Believers, as we walk through this life, we pick up sin on our feet. The dust of sin. We don't need to be re-cleansed when we sin. We don't need to get re-saved. The Scriptures tell us that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we become a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. It's our memory verse. You don't become a new creature when you get saved and then fall away from being a new creature every time you sin. It doesn't work that way. You're a new creation. You stay a new creation, but you do gather some dust on your feet. In this picture, in this analogy, our heart is sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Our heart is pure, but you know our body gets a little dirty because we sin in this life. And so when we come to God with a true heart and full assurance, we come to God first recognizing that we've accepted Christ as our Savior, but second, that our bodies are washed with pure water, that we've confessed our sins before Him. That we have nothing weighing on our conscience that is between us and our Savior. That we are walking in fellowship through confession. 1 John 1, nine confession. And so as we come to God with a genuine heart, with full assurance of faith, it is expected and understood that we will do so as a believer and having confessed all of our sins before God. We are therefore walking in fellowship with our Savior and we may have boldness to draw near to Him. This is very similar to much of what we're learning in 1 John in our Tuesday evening time together. So because of the ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we ought first to draw near. The next expectation, the next obligation, the next opportunity that we have because of the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf is found in verse 23. Not only let us draw near verse 22, but in verse 23 he says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise." We are first expected to take full advantage of our access. We are next expected to be bold in our acknowledgement of our faith to the world around us. This word here, profession, in the original languages is the same word that we see in Romans 10, 9, where Paul states that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that he hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The idea is that we are acknowledging something to be true. 
The Bible teaches us that the man who refuses to acknowledge Jesus Christ as his Lord is not a believer. Now, this does not mean that the man who recognizes Jesus Christ as Lord will make him Lord over every area of his life immediately. There's a difference between recognizing the authority of Jesus Christ and submitting ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ, is there not? As believers, the Scriptures tell us that we have confessed with our mouths the Lord Jesus, that we have acknowledged the authority of Jesus Christ. But you know, each one of us is still struggling in various ways to submit ourselves to that authority, are we not? And that is the process of sanctification. That is the process of slowly and surely, over time, learning of God, loving God, and therefore placing ourselves under His authority. But no true believer will refuse to acknowledge his faith in Jesus Christ and Christ's authority over him, even if they aren't willing to fully submit themselves to it. And the idea here is that as believers in Hebrews 10.23, we need to hold fast to that profession. We need to stand firm in our determination to associate ourselves with Jesus Christ. Not to be ashamed of Him, not to be afraid of Him, but to hold fast our determination, our profession of our faith. Why? For He is faithful. That promised. Because He has promised us eternal life. He has promised us a home in heaven. He has promised us victory. There's no reason that the things of this earth should cause us to waver in our confession of Christ. This last privilege and responsibility that we'll look at this evening is found in verses 24 and 25. We draw near to God in honesty and humble faith through a pure and holy life. We hold fast to our acknowledgement of God in the world around us. Finally, we help other Christians to do the same. Verses 24 and 25 of Hebrews 10. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Paul tells us that we need to provoke one another. Now the idea of provoking is often seen in a negative light, is it not? I look at one of my daughters and I say, stop provoking your sister. There's nothing about that statement that would lend me uh, or lend itself to the understanding that it's something positive. The implication is likely that one of them is trying to make the other one angry or jealous. One of them set down their baby doll and the sister comes up. She doesn't care about the baby doll, but she'll come up and grab it and run away with it. Why? Not because she wants to play with the baby doll, but because she wants to provoke her sister into anger. <laughs> she, she doesn't want her sister to have the baby doll. She wants to make her sister angry. Provocation is the idea, however, it's much broader than negative context. To provoke is the idea that we are doing something in order to stimulate a response. We are doing something with the specific expectation of a response. So if I provoke someone unto anger, I'm doing something that I would expect to make them, would make them angry. My sister had one of those big red flashing push me buttons growing up. I always knew her buttons and I could just push that button at any time and ah, you know, she'd, she'd, she'd blow up in my face. She was easily provoked. And as a, not a great brother, to be quite honest, I, I 
reveled in the privilege of provoking her unto anger, unto um, annoyance, unto wrath, whatever it might be. But provoking in and of itself is not a bad thing. And here Paul tells us that there are two virtues that we ought to be provoking one another concerning. And the first of these is love. That we are to encourage one another to love and act in such a way that we are helping to produce love in the lives of our fellow believers. In other words, when I am in this congregation and we're talking before the service and after the service, the things that I say and the things that I do ought to be done with the desire to stimulate you to love. It isn't just that I'm loving, but that I am acting in an intentional way to try to get a response of love in you. To provoke you unto love. To provoke you to desire to love. And the second of these provocations is not just love, but also good works. In like manner, we are to encourage one another to act in such a way that is befitting a servant of God both before God and man. That we are not just to do good works, but we are to do things that should stimulate good works in our fellow believers. That we should be provoking, stimulating, loving good works. So, two questions come to mind as we consider this responsibility. First, how do we do this? Second, when do we do this? Well, how do we provoke one, one another to good works? We, we live it. We talk about it. We expect it. We ask others how they're doing with respect to it. We invite others to join us in it. I live love. I live good works. I invite you to join me as I love others and as I do good works. I ask you, hey, how are you doing at loving? How are you doing at whatever the good work is? that I'm asking on that particular day. We expect it. We place expectations upon God's people. Wait a minute. You just did that. That's not very loving. Shouldn't you be loving? That wasn't a very good work you just did. Let's, let's work on good works. Encouraging, provoking one another to good works. But when is it? When is it that you and I can provoke one another to love and good works? Well, that's verse 25. When we assemble. When we assemble is when we can provoke one another to good works. This is why we must not forsake the opportunities that we have to meet together, to fellowship together, to learn together, to grow together. And as we get together with fellow believers to fellowship and to learn God's word and to grow we are encouraging one another to do the same and we ought to encourage one another to do the same. When I see my brother in Christ and he is reading his Bible faithfully, I'm encouraged to do so as well. When I see my brother in Christ and I go over to their house for a meal and I see the Bible on the end table and I say, hey, when's the last time you read that, brother? Well, this morning, we'll praise the Lord. Keep it up. Be not weary in well-doing for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Galatians 6, 9. When I see how much Scripture my brother in Christ knows, I'm encouraged to memorize as well. Wow, she really knows the Scriptures. Why don't, why don't I spend time memorizing? 
Why don't I spend time hiding the Word of God in my heart? When I see the love that my fellow believers have shown toward me and others, I'm encouraged to show love to them and to others. We come together for mutual edification, for accountability, for exhortation unto good works and unto love. We provoke one another. But if we aren't around Christians, we are forsaking a vital aspect of our responsibility and our privilege as we await Christ's return. We are forsaking the responsibility that we have to encourage and to provoke one another unto love and unto good works. Now, I titled this message, The God of Christmas Present. Not Christmas Presents. The God of Christmas Present. It's meant to be a bit catchy. Perhaps uh, give you reminiscent thoughts of the ghosts of Christmas past and present and future. It's a Christmassy thing. It's catchy. It's fun. But it's meant to emphasize that the impact of Jesus Christ's birth and death and resurrection and the impact of your salvation is intended to be something that is ongoing, perpetual, daily. God did not redeem you from your sin simply so that you could go back to living in it. And God did not redeem you from your sins so that you could be a useless lump of believer sitting in your home on your couch eating potato chips. God redeemed you to serve Him. You have a great high priest in the heavenlies. We enter before our Father through the veil that is His flesh, sprinkled with, on our hearts with His blood, not so that we can be lazy, not so that we can serve ourselves, but so that we can do what He's asked us to do. We aren't just Christians on Sunday. We're not just Christians when other Christians are around. Christianity isn't just a part of our lives. Our relationship with Christ shouldn't just be a part of who we are. It ought to define every element of who we are. We ought to be a Christian working on our car, a Christian playing video games, a Christian going to work, a Christian shopping in the shopping center a Christian going to that family fellowship. It's not, I come into church and I'm a Christian and I leave and I don't have to be anymore. It's never worked that way. It can't work that way. In fact, James tells us a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So until the Lord comes, until He takes us home, while we are His upon this earth, let's live like it. Let's draw near to Him in holiness and in faith with a true heart and full assurance. Let's hold fast to our profession of our faith so that the world around us might know that we are indeed followers of Christ. And as we do so, let's be busy about provoking one another unto love and unto good works, working together to be everything that God desires us to be. Let's close in prayer.